Okay, first episode, Bioenergetic Helpline with Harrison Ben, Jay Feldman, and Mike Fave. How are you gentlemen doing? We'll start with Harrison. How are you, sir? Am I unmuted? <laughs> yes, we're live. <laughs> you can, everybody can hear us. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. I'm, doing, I'm doing great. I'm oh. excited to be here. Yes, and Jay, how are you? I'm great. I'm good. And then I'm Mike. Excited. And Mike, you too. I'm awesome. Not great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we all came here. We wanted to do something. We have similar ideas about the future. And we, th- we thought, why don't we start with a podcast? You know, that would be kind of easy thing to kind of get our feet wet. But um, for example, Harrison's in Mexico. Jay, where are you right now? I'm in Ecuador. Ecuador. And then how? And then Mike, you're in Tejas, Texas, right? I'm in. Yes, I'm in Texas. <laughs> and we thought about what could this show possibly be, you know? And I kind of drove us into the direction of taking calls because I thought it would keep the show fresh and it'd be something kind of interesting to do. And then you can't talk about the basics enough. uh, And I'm sure we all kind of work with people and Harrison's work with like Olympic athletes and things like that. And I I don't know, you guys should comment on this, but I feel like you can't talk about the basic stuff enough. You know, it's just going to be never ending cycle of talking about the basics. Um, So we're getting a call here. It's messing up the window. Um, but anyways, so I, I kind of see this this podcast for other people. You know, obviously we're going to have fun doing it, and I'm sure it will go off in a bunch of different tangents and things like that. But I really view it as like a office hours or something for people to call in and hopefully hopefully shed some kind of light on the whatever health problem it is. Because I, I think we have oodles of experience uh, with, with this stuff. And Jay and Mike, uh, all you guys are smarter than I am. So I think it will be a really – I think we'll add value to people's lives hopefully. So – uh, should we take our first call? We already have one. <laughs> sure, let's go. It's kind of messing up Jay's uh, window here. So, guys, this is going to be kind of a shit show because this is the first time we're doing this. But I think we're going to go. Um, okay, I'm like afraid to take this because I don't know if it's got. I hope it like mer- merges the call. Okay, we're just going to do this and see how it goes. Okay. Okay, caller, uh, you are on the air with Jay, Mike, and Harrison. Uh, what is your name, please? <laughs> Okay, that was a complete bust. <laughs> maybe they maybe they hug up. I don't know. Just a minute. Uh, okay, we'll keep going. Okay, what? Uh, maybe we can go through some. Do you, does anybody want to kind of give a elevator pitch for who they are and how they got into Ray? It doesn't have to be very long. Maybe we'll start with Jay. Maybe just kind of your background. Well, yeah. So uh, I've been interested in health and fitness from yeah pretty young age i think like a lot of us have that that in common and i know we've we all kind of followed a similar trajectory we kind of talked about it before uh following different people that it you know led us to a lot of things that didn't work so well either for ourselves or the people who we were trying to help and uh eventually that led me specifically to you danny to your hair like a fox book (laughs) (laughs) to you (laughs) which was a really great introduction to um to ray pete and and uh, yeah, things kind of blossom from there. And um, now, you know, like like the three of you, you know, I help people with this bioenergetic approach. And uh, yeah, that's that's where I'm at. Amazing, uh, Mike. You want to talk? Uh, I found it. I found Dr. Pete from Jay through you. So Jay found here like a fox. He's like, <laughs> hey man, you have to check this stuff out. And then I think in like one day, I went through all the videos that you made, and I went through like the entire text text that you made. And I, then I was just like, 
all right, I got to reconsider some of the things or I have to at least look into this stuff because it was quite convincing. You were, you and were like, I went and, man, this guy has a lot of grammatical errors. <laughs> that was your first, no, that was your first you should, thought. <laughs> well, you can ask Jay, especially with my own grammatical errors. There's zero chance I would have recognized any of them. <laughs> but then I started reading Dr. Pete stuff and it was like immediately mind blowing. And so then I was like, I really have to reconsider the perspective with which I'm looking at things because I was obviously in like paleo, keto, intermittent fasting, hormesis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, um, yeah, just kind of snowballed from there. And for anybody who's not aware, Jay and I were roommates in college for three years. So we were going through all this stuff together and then we found uh, Danny and Dr. Pete and everyone together. Okay, so, uh, I'm going to pause you right there. Let's try this call again. I think this is the merge call button. Um, merge call. Yeah, okay. Let's see this. Hello, caller. Can you hear us? Please introduce yourself. Yes, ca caller, you are on the air with Harrison, Jay, and Mike. What is your name? Hi, it's Ryan from Arizona. Ryan, how are you, sir? What is your question? I'm doing well. So I'm a... I'm a second year at a naturopathic uh, college out here in Arizona. And I'm curious if any of you guys have advice for somebody becoming a physician in the area and how you would integrate, I guess, repeat or the metabolic approach into a practice. I'm, I'm pretty ignorant on that issue, but if anybody else wants to chime in, uh, I, Mike actually works in the medical field, but anybody have any thoughts? Oh, I don't know about naturopathic school because I'm more in like a traditional medical model. I'm in nurse practitioner school, but I, I don't see, uh, I don't see it being difficult integrating any of uh, the bioenergetic approach inside your practice. What I would say is I think most practices and most hospitals, at least, I know that's not necessarily all alternative medicine, but most hospitals are moving towards an online approach with things. So seeing their patients and clients online. So once you get your naturopathic degree, if you, I don't know if you want to get experience just working in a clinic or like an alternative health practitioner's office, et cetera, just to see how kind of the business side of things run, run, runs, because I don't think they really go over that much in much of schooling, but then you could probably try and set, set up a presence online and work with clients online. That's probably going to be your best bet for at least increasing the number of people you can reach and um, not having to have like brick and mortar. If that, that's something you're interested in. Yeah, definitely. And for you, Danny, is there any chance we can get access to the, uh, that Epic Evernote that you have? <laughs> uh, many people have asked me that the, the problem is, is I started in about 2010 and, and I have, it, it contains about 8,000 notes. And the problem is like through the last 10 years, I've just put some like personal information in the notes, but I have no clue which ones. And so it's just like, it's just, it'd be nuts for me to release it. Because, not that there's, oh my God, it's such personal, like in, in material, but it would just be, I don't know. It just, it would feel wrong. And, and the other thing is like, I, I'm okay with somebody scrutinizing my articles or a video or whatever, or things I say on the internet, but the scrutinizing my notes would be a little bit too much to handle because like sometimes Ray would uh, I find some article and just put it in my notes, but like it, it would be a real quick thing. And so I don't know. I, it's the, the reason why I always mention that stuff is to encourage other people to do those things. And so I encourage people to make their own Evernote or to make their own Rome or, or whatever. And 
And so again, it's if 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 I had never not in in like if I had intended to release it to the public at some point, that would have been okay. But I just never did. There's like there's never a point in my mind that the, the the Evernote would ever be released at any point. And so it's just it seems I'd have to go through eight thousand notes and to look what each one contained. So it's just completely improbable. I, I apologize. Yeah, understood. <laughs> understood. Yeah, I'm a uh, I'm a couple. I'm about nine years behind you on my Evernote. So. Maybe, maybe one day I'll, yeah, I don't know. It would be epic to be able to see some of that though. The, the, <laughs> the thing is though, but, the, a lot of the articles that I think are good are in the references of the ones of the articles that I've like written. And so it's not like I'm like hoarding good. And also a lot of them are from Ray Pete. <laughs> so it's like, you got to raise website and you look at his references and those are like a lot of the ones in my articles. Yeah, or the forum too. Exactly. Sure a lot of it's on the forum. Exactly. Ryan, brother, thank you so much for the call. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys. Have a good day. Okay, bye, brother. Take it easy, man. Okay, we have another call. Um, let's do that and then we can chat a bit. Okay, here's another one. Okay, caller, you are on the air with me, Jay Feldman, Mike Fave, and Harrison Ben. How are you? Hey, can you guys hear me? Yes, perfectly. Yeah. How are you, sir? Good, good. So I just had a quick question. Um, I was I was gonna ask just Mike in general, but I guess you guys can all give your take. Um, do whatever you want. You know, it's your show. Uh, when do you think is a justified time to use antibiotics? And do you think that there can be repercussions even from the, you know, so-called safe antibiotics, even if you're taking let's say vitamin K or something alongside. Uh, so did the caller uh, get off there. Are you still there? Yeah. Oh, okay. okay sorry. Good. Sorry, Mike, go ahead. So it depends with antibiotics. It depends on the dosage that you're taking and it depends on the antibiotic. Uh, I'm sure you guys will have other perspectives to add. So this is just one, but I think that um, like, for example, if you were to use something like minocycline at lower dosages, it may not necessarily have like a disturbing effect or an antibiotic effect on the microbiome. It may have an effect more so uh, in inflammation. I, I know they. I was just talking about it today that I think uh, with a client that uh, they 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 use minocycline for autoimmune diseases because it works on something called the metallo the matrix metalloproteinases, which are enzymes in the joints. So it's like specifically for joint diseases. But for some of the other antibiotics, like the penicillins or uh, like a regular tetracycline, not a minnow, um, or even I think some of the macrolides, um, that's really the, the times when I personally would use them is if I have like clear indications of some infective process. Um, or some chronic gut issues that haven't been resolved with other modalities first, which would be like hitting the basics to start. I think they're kind of the antibiotics are kind of like higher up or I guess deeper level interventions, less so something I would start with right off the bat. And then as far as dosages go, um, I've listened to Ray talk about it quite a bit. And then I also have what we talk about in the modern medical sphere. So Ray's perspective is to use enough of the antibiotic to kind of knock out what you have going on. Uh, I think recently he talked, maybe it was with Patrick Timpone, he was met talking about using just enough to knock out strep throat. And then when you feel better, kind of 
maybe give it one extra day and that's that's it. Whereas, and I think that was penicillin in that case. Um, whereas in modern medicine, the perspective is you're gonna the it's everything is about pharmacokinetics or pharmacokinetics and getting tissue concentrations at certain levels and then running it for an extended period of time to basically knock out the whatever pathogen you have going on. Personally, it really depends on the infective process you have going on. If you have like a pretty serious abscess or infection or uh, like serious UTI and it's not resolving, like I'd probably use whatever, well, certain antibiotics I wouldn't use, but I would use an antibiotic at, at a regular dosage for, you know, for the amount of times required just so that you don't get resistance and you don't have any like chronic problem from that. But in the bioenergetic sphere, if you're having like gut issues or something like that, I think maybe the smaller doses might be something to try out. I, I know I've tried, um, I've tried tetracycline, penicillin, minocycline, Bactrim. Bactrim isn't necessarily PE approved. Um, so yeah, I would start with start with intervent the more basic interventions first: diet, supplementation, etc. See if you strengthen your body enough, you can deal with the infection. And then I would, if you're still having chronic problems, then I would start to target more with the antibiotic at, you know, different dosages. And you could see where therapeutic ranges are. There's a website, drugs.com, that'll tell you the different, um, whatever infection you have, whatever type of bacteria, et cetera. And it'll tell you the dosage. And I think it's under the provider section. Harrison, do you want to comment on your, just your general experience with antibiotics? Because I know you've experimented, experimented with them as well, right? Um, yes, I have experimented with minocycline, tetracycline, and, um, amoxicillin and clarithromycin. Um, and well, I mean, just to speak to like the general, the general theme that everybody responds differently to, um, to the same product. Um, and I think like Mike said to echo is that you would want to kind of, take care of the basic things first and see how well you respond to some of those things before, uh, introducing some of the, the antibiotics. Um, and then I've, I've used them in kind of like a peat fashion or like using them on a small enough dose just to see an improvement in your symptoms and then back off. Um, and I've always responded really favorably to them. Um, my most interesting response was I was dealing with um, like a GERD issue, gastrointestinal reflux um, disorder, and it was pretty bad. And I thought I had an H. pylori infection. And so I reached for the uh, amoxicillin clarithromycin, and I didn't resolve the, the GERD issue. I did resolve the GERD issue, but for another reason. But I also have dealt with hyperhidrosis, like a sweating condition for on and off for like my whole life. And that was completely knocked out with the, um, clarithromycin, um, amoxicillin dose. And I just thought that that was like super fascinating. And I never thought that those two things would be related taking antibiotics for like, a an adrenaline issue. But I think when you, when you crack down the, the metabolic, uh, I guess when you're when you're going down the generative approach to resolving your issues, you would find that improvements in metabolic health can resolve general disorders, right? Dude, brilliant. Call, caller, do you and anything we didn't address? 
Uh, no, thank you. Thank you guys so much. Dude, total yeah, pleasure. No problem. Take care. Have a great day. Okay. Okay, amazing. <laughs> we got some good calls going on. We've been streaming for about 20 minutes. Guys, call in, and we'll take the calls. We'll, we'll hang around for about an hour. Um, were you in Ecuador last time we talked? Jay, you were, right? Am I just... Uh, Okay, just when we got another call, we'll 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 uh, reconvene on that point in a second. All right. <laughs> okay, caller, you are on the air with us. Uh, how are you? What is your name? Hey, how you doing? Good. This is good. This is Kyle. Hey, Kyle. What is your question? <laughs> uh, my question today for you guys. Thanks so much for taking the call. Is I've got two quick ones for you. The first one is. I would really love if you guys could spend a little bit more time. This is always a little bit of a sticky point for me when um, we talk about the different types of fatty acids. So when we're talking about polyunsaturated versus saturated fatty acids and how they're broken down differently. So if we could talk about how like anything specific and what differentiates the two, that would be uh, fantastic. And maybe why, the polyunsaturated fatty acids are um, supposed to be detrimental, um, especially given that the mainstream medicine obviously puts out quite a bit of, of information saying that they seem to be very pro-health. So if that's, that's the first question. And then um, after that, it's maybe like more of like a general one. And this is um, maybe in relation to like a friend I'm working with who is overweight and based on listening into the, the podcast and, and, you know, my own readings, I would have like an assumption that trying to lose as much weight as you can, as quickly as you can might not be the best approach. And I was wondering if you guys might have like a, a thought on what would be the best, like first step, should we be looking at some type of, gut health or something like that, or if we should be focusing on macros or something else that I'm not even thinking of. Awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to kick you off and let these guys handle these questions. Okay, Kyle. Awesome. Thanks oh, so much. Thanks brother. Okay. Bye. Yep. Okay. okay. Uh, who, uh, who, Jay, do you want to handle the fatty acid? Sure. So he mentioned breakdown. Do you guys just, I don't know if you guys want to weigh in. Do you think he <laughs> was referring to like peroxidation? Uh, like yes. the lipid peroxidation products, like the malodialdehyde and the hydroxynonanol and things, acrolein. Uh, yeah, I think I I thought you meant oxidate, uh, like oxidizing the fatty acids as far as like like uh, through the, <laughs> through beta oxidation. Oh no, I I ah, well, <laughs> should have kept it. <laughs> we can touch on both. <laughs> that, that's okay. that's gonna be a forty-five minute question. So uh, I think you talk about the differences, like carbon, hydrogen, double bond carbon. That that kind of stuff. Uh, oh, so not so not not beta ox. The difference between beta oxidation of saturated versus poly. No, Mike. I think he's talking about that. Okay. Wait. Yes. <laughs> yes or no? Yeah. You know, okay. Jay so, can handle I the breakdown hear, products, and then that. Mike, you could handle the beta oxidation if you want. <laughs> sure. Okay. So, as far as like the structure goes, the polyunsaturated fats are named that way based on the amount of double bonds that they have and their that relationship with hydrogen. So saturated fats are fully saturated with hydrogen and their, their carbon tails. They don't have any double bonds because of that. Whereas the polyunsaturated fats have multiple double bonds and where you have those double bonds, you lose 
hydrogens. And so it's uh, unsaturated from hydrogen or unsaturated with hydrogens, which is why it's an unsaturated fat. And the poly part is just talking about the amount, meaning that there's more than one double bond, more than one area of, of a lack of saturation. And the reason why that's relevant, and this is the other part maybe of breakdown, is that those double bonds allow for, basically cause weakness, and they allow for damage to occur. So that's why, like you see this as far as their relationship with temperature, where the polyunsaturated fats tend to be more liquid at room temperature, saturated or more solid. Uh, and basically with that same relationship, the polyunsaturated fats get damaged much easier, and that has a whole, you know, trajectory of problems that it causes among other things there's other problems with that instability when it's used structurally in the cell and the mitochondria that causes inefficiencies in energy production as well so there's a handful of areas where that comes into play and then mike i'm going to need a detailed breakdown of the stoichiometry <laughs> of fatty acids so go ahead and handle that for me thanks i don't think i can handle all that <laughs> off the top of my head i'd have to like bring out a diagram all of it. um i just wanted to clarify too uh from, from Jay's point, the lack of saturation, like the points that aren't saturated, so the carbon that doesn't have the hydrogens attached, are the areas that become more weak. Um, mm -hmm. So the more of those unsaturated spots, the weaker that fatty acid becomes and more likely it is for it to be able to be pulled apart. And then essentially those, when it's, when it's pulled apart, those broken areas are kind of, like I guess the way I usually explain it is like, it's like glass, right? It's like if you break, you have a nice window, the window looks great, you break it, and now you have a whole bunch of shards. So when you have these oxidized fatty acids or these, these fatty acid pieces that are damaged, when it, they're inside the cell or inside the body, it, they cause damage in and of themselves. Um, and as far as the oxidation of the different fatty acids, from what I understand, there's uh, adjustments in insulin sensitivity to some extent in the different studies from oxidizing the different fatty acids where supposedly saturated fatty acids in certain tissues and cells and whatnot with oxidation like decrease insulin sens sensitivity to some extent, whereas the poly somehow increase it. This has been, I think this was like a central point of the argument for the SCD1 stuff that Jay and I, we actually did a podcast on at one point. Um, and then there's also adjustments with saturated and unsaturated fats as far as uh, I think affinity for water. So I think the polyunsaturated fats are I think they have they're more lipo or uh, hydrophilic than the saturated fatty acids. And I was reading a paper on this at one point that the lipophilic or the hydrophilicity, which means water loving or they like water liking, um, the increased hydrophilicity of the polyunsaturated fatty acids increased the ability to some extent of fatty acid synthase inside the fat tissue to release those fatty acids. But I know there's some contention about this in the in the um, peat sphere, because I know Dr. Pete has referenced some studies and talked about some studies saying that the polyunsaturated fatty acids were more likely to be stored. Um, and then I think, Jay, what you're covering as well with the fatty acids is that um, with the, the structural changes, or as far as the structural changes go, is that with the polyunsaturated fatty acids, every point that you have the double bond with the, the different forces of attraction that are functioning on the fatty acid tails and inside the system and whatnot, you actually get, you can get the fatty acid tail to curve. And when you have the fatty acid tail to curve, that's where, that's where you see the fluid, the lack of ability to pack or create a solid substance. So you have like the increased fluidity of the structure. If this occurs at the mitochondria 
or if this occurs in the cellular structure, then the cell technically can become leakier. Um, and with the leakier uh, effect, you basically can damage uh, the, the ability to produce energy. And then I also wonder if that has some effect of the when you have these fats inside the cell, the ability to structure water. But I think that's a different, longer conversation. Um, <laughs> Don't you dare and, bring up Gilbert Ling in this this <laughs> this <Q&A. laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> the last thing, I, I, from what I understand, although and I don't know, this is the point. I don't know exactly off the top of my head. Is I do think there are some changes because of the double bonds in how some of the the monounsaturated, saturated, and polyunsaturated fats run through beta oxidation, uh, and I think that may be part of some of the insulin signaling. But I don't know it off the top of my head. Like I'd have to look into that a little bit more to give you to give you guys like a more specific answer. Just like locally in the cell, like the those hydrogens are being stolen by the free radicals from like imperfect respiration. And then it's creating creating like end, end, end products like acrolein, uh, HNE or hydroxynenanol or whatever, malodialdehyde. And, and those are damaging respiration. And then the lipid peroxidation process is also stealing oxygen at the same time, right? And so... Yeah, and, and, sorry, those, those fatty acid breakdown uh, products are found in polyunsaturated fats and not in saturated fats? The, they're... they're or Mike. Go for it, Mike. I, I mean... No, oh, I didn't. They're uh, they're found inside the body. You can get there are peroxidative pro, uh, peroxidative products that you can find in the polyunsaturated fats in general. But the main ones that we talk about, the ones that Danny's mentioning, are HNE, and then there's another one. I think it's HHE, which is for omega uh, three fatty acids. So there's one for omega sixes and one for omega three, and those are produced directly, usually around the, the mitochondria. Or actually, they're even produced during digestion. I went over an article, I think, uh, with Hans at one point, basically showing that the PUFA during digestion get oxidized, um, especially if combined with like heme protein. But yeah, they're the ones that those specific ones we're talking about are compounds that you would see in the body. And then another one, Danny, is like MDA, right? Mal, mal, malonyl dialdehyde or whatever it is. But to answer his question, the the saturated fats are not susceptible to getting their hydrogens taken, correct? And so right. that's, that's why they're resistant to the peroxidation. Yeah. But, yeah, and but they yeah. can, of course, be – you can have peroxidation. It's just hundreds of times less likely or yeah. happens hundreds of times less. less. Uh, like when you look at the chart, it's like – you know, the – the I difference wish we had in it. the graph isn't. Yeah, I mean, I can pull it up, but I don't, <laughs> if we shared the screen, I'm sure it would be crazy <laughs> on this. Yeah, don't don't share the screen. <laughs> this is already hanging on by a thread. <laughs> so, the one thing I will say, though, is that with some of the saturated fatty acids, like, for example, like butter has cholesterol in it. And the cholesterol, while, like, say you were to fry with coconut oil, the cholesterol in butter with frying, it can possibly oxidize. Where even though the palmitic acid and other saturated fatty acids in butter are unlikely to oxidize, so that's something to keep in mind. Um, whereas with like coconut oil, you don't have that cholesterol, or or beef towel has minimal cholesterol, or cocoa butter doesn't really have any cholesterol. So that that is something that I think can be important. Like not frying at really high temperatures with butter might be helpful. And then we didn't even get into the protein digestive enzyme inhibition in the gut, right? Um, and then, and just, I mean, and there, there's like too many bad things to list from, and we didn't talk about the prostaglandins oh, yeah. from the omega-6. And so you, you should mention those. You should go into those, Danny, because I think that's extremely important because pretty much er, almost all inflammatory pathways converge to some extent through prostaglandins, no? 
I mean, you know better than I do. But the yeah. uh, the one that I thought was always interesting was that prostaglandin E2, and that's the one that apparently activates aromatase to convert testosterone to estrogen. And so anybody mm -hmm. concerned with like maintaining some level of androgenicity or whatever should probably think about that. But they that that's like intermixed with the idea that you need it to uh, grow muscle. And so I, and the mm -hmm. bodybuild bodybuilding world is always saying like you need prostaglandins. And so that's a whole other thing. What what was the second question? I completely can't remember. It's about weight loss. Oh He's yeah, yeah. Basically, asking for like a first step. What what would the right first step be? Or like the the question of, and someone is severely obese. More often than not, the in the to to try to improve their health, most people will say to to lose weight or to lose weight as quickly as possible. Um, and maybe is that a right first step, or is there a safer way to do that? Because we all know, or um, we know that there can be some dangers in having a, an obese person lose a lot of fat or liberate a lot of fat very quickly. Right. Yeah. I actually have a, a, in the hospital, I've seen a couple patients and I've had family members too, who were obese and they went on diets to lose weight rapidly and they had lost like a hundred pounds or whatever it was. And uh, I've seen them develop like really weird issues after that. Like one guy developed GBS, uh, which is Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is like a type of paralysis. Uh, and then another, I've seen people like my cousin got MS after she lost like 100 pounds. Obviously, they didn't do it through any solid method. So I think there's, I'm not saying, I haven't read research to look at associations for that. But I have just seen kind of people lose weight pretty rapidly and then get, you know, not, so great results and then there's also the people who do like gastric banding surgeries like there's a pretty high relapse rate a couple years later it's not immediate it's like five years down the line of putting the weight back on or even with with dieting like the biggest loser contestants i think they did a study with them and they show that they put it back on so the question is not of how fast can you how much and how fast the question is sustainability so can you sustain that weight loss? And at, at least if your outcome is for health gains, if your if your focus is for health, then I think the question is sustainability. If your focus on for um, like vanity, then obviously fast and fast and uh, amount would probably be more and, and destroy specific. your destroy your metabolism also. There's, yeah, there's yeah. Some, there's, I think. Sorry, go ahead, Jay. All right. So so I think what Danny said there, destroying your metabolism is more important than the sustainability and lends to the sustainability because you can make the argument that sure for the biggest loser people they just couldn't sustain the diet and and exercise but for the people with the gastric by by um, what is it the band yeah. they don't have a choice right like you can only eat so much uh so i think what you're really seeing there is the result of severe calorie deficits on metabolism which we you know you see it in so many different iterations about the rebound weight gain that comes from that and how much it tanks your metabolism and causes other issues. So I think it has less to do with the sustainability and more to do with the approach not being one that destroys your metabolism. Yeah, yeah I can yeah, not sustain. Go ahead, Harrison. Go ahead. No, you go, Mike. No, Harrison was going to go. He, he's got it. <laughs> well, there's there's some things that people can do to to protect them, to protect their metabolism while they're, they're trying to cut calories, right? Like if you're cutting a lot of calories and you are going to be burning more fat, for example, and liberating it in your bloodstream, and it happens to be 
polyunsaturated fat. You could possibly use like vitamin E supplementation to, to protect yourself from the dangers of that or aspirin. Um, so there's some strategies that you can use when like you do like a strategic caloric deficit. There's things that you could do to maybe protect yourself a little bit more than doing nothing at all. Um, vitamin E, the fat soluble vitamins and aspirin, low dose aspirin would be things that I would consider with like an obese person, um, embarking on a caloric deficit. Um, and then I had never really thought about this before, but I think Ray mentioned it about like a, um, not like a liposuction, but like a, like a surface level incision and then like removing a lot of the fat, like not being like a terrible idea. Yeah, but you'd have to have like the most skilled uh, uh, surgeon ever. <laughs> skilled surgeon that would ever not to do that. <laughs> you know, to, go, go ahead. You know what they do with the liposuctions for for fat? Have you ever got? Have you guys ever seen the Doctor Miami stuff? No, no. It's literally like this long rod that like vibrates pretty fast, and they like insert it in the subcutaneous layer, and then they just kind of like move it around, and it vibrates, and then it suctions all the fat out. It's kind of it's pretty like pretty rough. I, I saw videos where they were doing it and it looked like they were, the guy was like late to dinner or something. He was doing it so fast and so aggressively. <laughs> it, it looked like a, a tra- like the most traumatic thing you could possibly experience. But in an email race, it would, that might be an okay strategy if a person considered how traumatizing surgery was, but yes. if they were like extremely obese, you know, right. like, like that might be such a long time to lose that amount of weight. But I, I resonate strongly with what Jay said. It's like, I was never really attracted to this stuff for losing weight per se, because I always thought that was like secondary to the metabolic stuff. And, and so I, again, I'd never seen this paper, but I'm sure we've all heard Ray talk about that paper where uh, women will gain weight on 700 calories per day. And like the medical ward, if they're, if they're extremely hypothyroid. And so it just seems like getting your ducks in a row and approaching the metabolism like first and then trying different strategies might be like more rewarding than some of the crazy stuff people do, you know, because, because again, you're just going to go around in circles or you're going to go nowhere. If your pulse, your pulse and temperature are super low and you're just on a low calorie diet, you're just going to shoot yourself in the foot or something. Well, I mean, I've seen this. I actually, there's a paper, I think I sent you guys a paper at one point, but they were saying that, um, I think as obese people lost a certain amount of weight, uh, they start to tank their thyroid function. And then the weight went on like twice as fast and it was like like much more difficult to lose. So you wind up just digging yourself in a hole after the initial weight loss. Uh, I think that's what you see happen. But I've seen this with clients personally where I've had – I've actually had some obese clients. I had one client who was like body fat percentage was like 50%. And he went to go get a gastric uh, – a gastric uh, – I think it was a gastric sleeve. So they basically cut out like 80% of the stomach. And he – um. Before he went to go have the surgery, I asked him, I was like, did this surgeon, did this doc, did your, did your primary care physician and did your surgeon actually look like do a calorie count for you? Like, did they see how much you eat in a regular basis? He said, no. So I was like, okay, plug in a week for me in chronometer or just five days and let's see where you're at. So the guys, the guy is, I think he was like 385 pounds and he had, if you calculated his lean mass, it was like 190 pounds of lean mass, which that's a lot of lean mass. I'm a hundred and I don't know right now I'm 185, 195 pounds or hundred to 190 pounds. And that's not all lean mass. I probably have like 
160, 170 pounds of lean mass. So 190 pounds of lean mass is a lot of lean mass to be holding on to. I'm looking at this guy's chronometer. He's eating like 1500 calories a day or less. So you're going to put a, you're going to go do a gastric sleeve, cut out his stomach, decrease his portion sizes. And now we're just going to starve him and we're going to create nutrient deficiencies. Like it's just the entire ideology around it is barbaric. Like it just doesn't make any sense. Like as if the problem was gluttony and not, not an actual physiologic problem. And they treat it as like, it's like a psychological issues. Oh, your, your stomach is just too large. You can't control yourself. So we're going to cut your stomach down and then maybe you'll have a little self-control because you'll feel full sooner. Like it's just an absolutely ridiculous perspective. And not to mention that, that now you've impaired your, your stomach acid production, your digestion. If you, if you care any amounts about your microbiome or your gut, your digestion, wiping out stomach acid production is, I think a horrific idea overall. I don't know if I just froze for you guys. Hey, the stream is dry. It's, it's good because we have an additional recording that what the stream is going. So we just pretend like it didn't. Okay. Yeah. But overall, I think it's just, uh, I think it's like that, that whole side of things is insane. I mean, I had a patient the other day too, like 600 pounds came in for like, can't walk in bed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, like, like literally one of those shows, whatever the show is. I I don't know if you guys want like my 600 pound life or something like that, but she was, she's like 600 pounds. She had the gastric sleeve. It's like, I don't think that eating is is the problem at this point, especially because she like this lady had to live in a nursing home because she was unable to live. Like she was on a nursing home diet. They're not the, they're not going to overfeed her. If you've been in the hospital, like you get your three squares and they call it a day. So there's clearly like there's clearly metabolic issues going on. It's not just I, I highly doubt that it's just like a gluttony type of deal, especially if you like even if you're looking at like obese children to think about how long it would take for them to get to that size if you were trying to do a calories in calories out model without reflecting on metabolism right like if you're going to do purely a calories in calories out model if you have a super obese child it's like how do you really think they could realistically put on that much fat in that many years so yeah but to answer the question directly i think that the the first place anyone should ever start with any of this stuff is always the foundations which is what i think danny you highlighted with the show with is I think it's really important to hit diet. I think that's like focus on diet, macros, all that type of stuff, getting that stuff right, um, foods that you tolerate, et cetera, digestibility. <laughs> we might have lost the stream, but we should keep going. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't know what happened. It just like took a fat dump. Uh, anyways. <laughs> um, okay. It, it seems to be going again. Okay, guys, we're open for calls. We'll stream for another 20 minutes or so. Um, we, we did have to neglect a few calls while Mike was chatting there. So I think we're. Oh, you, I, th- I think you we're back. Cut me up. off, Danny. No, 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 no. I don't. I don't want to do that. But okay, we got another call. Okay, give me a second. Okay, caller, you are on the line. What is your name and where are you calling from? Uh, Michigan. How are, uh, and what's your name? Nodnard. How are? Uh, uh, what is your question, sir? Uh, I was calling because I basically just wanted to know if you guys had any thoughts or advice. But here in Michigan. We can't get any ripe fruit or good fruit at all other than like apples. And I was wondering if you thought it was a healthy trade-off to just like eat potatoes or some starch that you tolerate all right, or if you had any other advice or ideas as far as how to mitigate the situation. I really appreciate that. We'll, we'll do a round table and I'll give an answer. Thank you so much for calling. 
Thank you, everyone. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, here, we'll start with Harrison, and we'll just give elevator, elevator pitches for a lack of fruit or and what you think about potatoes. And maybe in your own, own experience. <laughs> your own experience. Can, I, can I talk about apples first? Yeah. Um, apples, if you cook them and put sugar on them, that can really help the digestibility um, and make them more delicious, maybe putting some saturated fat on it, like butter. Um, so I really like that personally. Um, not having access to fresh fruit. I could look at frozen fruit. I remember Mike turned me on to some frozen tropical fruits that were really, really quite good. So explore the frozen section and see what's available to you. Um, also looking at, um, fruit juice availability. Um, so cook the apples, look at the frozen fruit section, explore fruit juice, potatoes, um, learn how they affect your body. Um, me personally, the more they are cooked, the easier they are. A potato soup is better than like a baked potato. Um, for me, hot potato to Jake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I agree with Harrison's, uh, what he said, frozen fruit and fruit juice. I would add dried fruit, assuming you do well with it and maybe canned fruit. Also, sometimes it's harder to find it without too many additives, but probably worth it over nothing. I, I do really think it makes a difference to lean into something more fruit based over just purely starch. Uh, and you know, maple syrup and honey are probably good additions as well to supplement there. As far as potatoes go, I think, you know, again, fine. I, I just still wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't want to make that my main carb source. I know I wouldn't feel as good. Um, and I also personally prefer sweet potatoes, not as much the orange kind, but maybe the white or, or purple ones. I would maybe mix those in or other root vegetables or squashes, things like that. And Mike, yeah. I pretty much agree with all your guys' recommendations. I found that people, some people can tolerate tolerate uh, white rice pretty well as well. It's just pretty much nutrient poor. So it's not really a solid replacement. And then the other thing I would say is that when I, w- I used to live in New Jersey, when I live in New Jersey, I would go to like ethnic stores, ethnic markets. So like uh, Latino stores or like East West markets. And they actually have a, uh, in their frozen fruit section, they have quite a variety sometimes of like tropical fruits. Like remember the first time I went there, I had a cherry moya and it's just been, it's been a love affair ever since. So I would check out different uh, grocery stores. Oftentimes I go to like four grocery stores to get all the stuff that I wanted to get uh, when I was in different areas, even here. Like I go to like four or five grocery stores in Texas to get everything that I need to get. Yeah, I concur. The one thing I'll, I'll say that maybe none of you guys said is orange juice concentrate. And so if you go to the freezer section, especially in the U.S., they, they have orange juice concentrate. And if it's, if it's pure with no additives, it doesn't taste like amazing. But I noticed that I tolerated it completely fine, whereas that tart or sour orange juice on the shelf would like totally upset my stomach. And so I if I had access to that, I would stockpile it in my freezer and it would make life way easier. And so if, so if people live in the U.S., you, you can go get that and then... Yeah, canned fruit, if you can find it without citric acid, which was becoming like increasingly more difficult. Uh, I found some places in Malaysia that didn't have citric acid in it, but I've almost found no other. Like all this lychees here all have citric acid. Um, and then for myself, starch, besides, I guess, oat bran, because I noticed no problems with that. But potatoes wouldn't mess me up too bad that I, I just don't think I could use them every day. Okay, we'll stream for another 10 minutes or so. And then we'll also take questions uh, in the chat. Um, okay, let's take here. We got a caller. 
guys, this is a first show and it's really going very well. So thank you guys so much. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Harrison. This is, this is really something. Okay. Here's another call. Okay. Caller, you are on the air. Uh, what is your name and what is your question? Hi, this is Will. My, my question is uh, exercise protocols to burn, um, recommended exercise protocols to burn, uh, to burn carbohydrates versus uh, as contrasted to exercise protocols to burn fat. Awesome. Thanks, Will. I will pass it on to the, the crowd. Thank you for calling. Yep. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, oh, you know, I'm just, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be better for the connection if I kick you off. Okay. Okay. Thanks for calling. Will. Okay. Okay. Who wants to, ta to tackle that one? On <laughs> the round table again? Yeah. Okay. Uh, go, Harrison, you go. Um, I think it depends on like your wrestling metabolism um, as it is. Like some people will be in a stress state burning uh, when they shouldn't be, or some people will have a, a metabolic rate that's, that's super low. I think generally speaking, what the textbook well, it will tell you is like anything that's short, high intensity duration will be more uh, in line with depleting your glycogen stores first and then longer, slower paced, um, more endurance based activity. You're going to be moving over to to uh, a fat burning um, zone. Um, but I think it really depends on your um, your basal metabolic rate. And, um, what you're, what you've trained your body to, to burn as well. And what you're eating, like if you're not eating carbohydrates, like you're not going to be, there's not going to be glycogen stores to burn through. Um, so in a nutshell, short, high intensity stuff, you're going to be burning through your, your glycogen stores. And then if you don't replenish them, then you're going to be moving into a fat Zone. Yeah, and here's and dip into your experience with athletes. Like, what did you notice poor performance when people are on lower carbohydrate diets or what? It really would depend on the on the sport and the body type and like the the training session that um, we'd be like the training effect that we're going for. Like sometimes we want to push somebody to be um, more adept at burning fat, and then we would not have them consume carbohydrates at all before training to elicit those uh, fat burning adaptations that we, that we want. And then other times we would try to stay in like a pure um, glycolytic. Like glycolytic zone or try to avoid like the lactate production. So it really depends on like the athlete, what they're, what, what you're eating is going to influence what you're burning a lot as well. Um, so I, I think that's, that's probably all I have to say on that. Go for it, Jay. Yeah. So like what Harrison was bringing up there where the goal is not necessarily, or like I said, I would say it's not necessarily better to be burning carbs or fats when you're working out. There's context for both. And a lot of times the types of activities that, as you said, are glycolytic, those involve lactate production. Like that's, you know, above that lactate threshold. And so, you know, that's something that Ray has discussed as being a, a harmful thing in that context of exercise, which I'm not saying I necessarily agree or disagree with. I just think we want to be considering the context of what is the larger goal here. But as Harrison said, once intensity goes above a certain point, you tend to shift from fat to carb oxidation. That tends to be around 80% VO2 max or 80% max heart rate. 
And that's where you start to see that shift. But again, when you're going too far toward that glycolytic, you end up with lactate production. I don't think that's an issue in the same way that I don't really think fat burning is an issue in the context of exercise that's different from a low carb diet, right? You can have mild exercise that involves fat oxidation that is not harmful and you can recover well if you're in a decent metabolic state and has no general metabolic harm. That's not the same as not being able to oxidize carbs for your brain or store glycogen in your liver. Um, so yeah, that's my thoughts. Yeah. You guys pretty much covered it. I know there's like, what are the, it's like, there's the multiple different systems that you move through based on time and intensity for exercise. But just as an, get to give examples of what they were describing. Uh, if you were to, if you were to lift weights, you'd be most likely moving through the creatine system and then probably some glycolytic action. Uh, especially if you're lifting weights in like a hypertrophic fashion, or if you were doing some type of powerlifting, so bodybuilding, powerlifting, um, if you're doing sprints at a certain distance, then if you wanted to move more towards like a fat burning exercise, you'd be doing like a longer distance running, you know, perhaps rowing, biking, cycling, things like that. That and again, there's obviously thresholds that Jay was just mentioning uh, to reach certain levels. So and what I forget the different there's different zones, right? that where you, you can hit different heart rates and at the different heart rate, you have different metabolic activity, et cetera. So it can get pretty in depth, but the general idea would be more endurance type exercise would be having, I think more fat oxidation, whereas more, uh, acute, uh, intense exercise, as Harrison mentioned, you would be having more carb oxidation. And then, yeah, I, I like the point that you brought up Jay about the, uh, having an acute res response for exercise may not necessarily be a problem. Whereas, especially if you're going to compare to being like in a chronic low carbohydrate diet. Um, and then I wanted to just point out for people here that in Harrison's position, he's working with athletes who are optimizing for their athletic performance in a particular goal. They're not optimizing for health. So if they, if they're going to move toward, you know, if you have somebody who's doing some type of long distance exercise, on a regular basis, if they're a rower or something like that, and they need to optimize those pathways to be able to be good at their sport, they're sacrificing some things for the outcomes and other things. And it, that this is all depends on what your larger context goal is. Great stuff. Okay. We've got probably about five minutes, so we can take uh, one more call. Um, so guys, call, last caller, give it a go. And what, what, what did I get interrupted with? We're talking Jay by Ecuador. Is that it? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Did you had, had you move from Chile to Ecuador? Or am I just so you've been there for a while? Oh, Rico, <laughs> yeah, right? you're a little out of the loop. Yeah, I, I'm really, really. I've I've been building sound panels and uh and, and focusing on batteries. So I'm sorry, Jay. I haven't been in the loop. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. I just anticipate in the future you'll you'll keep a better track. Oh, you know what? Yeah. We just got another. We just got another call. <laughs> Yeah, okay, last, last call. Again. We'll, <laughs> we'll finally get to the story of Ecuador. Okay, last call. Okay, caller, you are on the line. Uh, what is your name and where you're calling from? Hello. Yes, you are. You are on the air. What is your name and uh, what are you? What, what is your question? <laughs> oh, what's going on, guys? My name's Tony. Uh, long time fan of Danny Roddy, and <laughs> appreciate all the work you guys are doing, man. I got a question. Um, I got a question about. So my mom, she's um like, I'm trying to like get her to like 
pick up her calorie, her caloric intake a little bit. And like, she doesn't, she's like, she's like never liked sweets. Like she doesn't really like fruits or like anything like that. Like has anyone else had an experience where like, like, um, you know, like just the person just doesn't really have the appetite. And then like, what would you suggest to like stimulate that? Dude, Tony, I completely remember you. Thank you so much for the question. And we'll, we'll, I'll hang up on you, but thank you so much. For sure. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, I have something to say about this, and you guys bounce it off, you guys. I think a lot of that has to do with the intestine, right? And serotonin, and that kind of being like a pseudo, like pseudo hyper, uh, anorexia type of hormone. And so if a person could get their intestine moving or something like that, with say something like carrot or um, uh, well-cooked white button mushrooms, that might naturally increase their appetite, and they wouldn't have to focus on some arbitrary amount of calories. Like, like the appetite to me should be like going to the bathroom. You shouldn't have to really think about it. You shouldn't have to like focus on getting too much food. That should be something that, that is just so natural and happens kind of without a person thinking. But, uh, what, what do you think, Mike? Um, I've had quite a few people who started out not really being so hungry. And then when I changed their diet and took out certain things again, like what you said, that's irritating the intestine and then added other things, they actually, over time, started to respond better. So, uh, particularly with sweets, I had quite a few people who tell me, oh, I'm not a sweet person, I'm a salty person, I don't want juice. And then I think part of that is like a cultural thing, to think that, just like a broad, like Western culture overall, to think that uh, carbs are bad. So there's like a psychological aversion to some extent at some, time, at some point, especially to sweet things. Um, but once they start having juice and having sweet things on a regular basis, you start to see that they, their appetite towards those things starts to increase, especially when you remove like irritating foods. So if you have somebody who's eating like a lot of grains and bread and things like that, and they're like, their appetite is, is gone. I, I think it actually is a serotonin thing. And that is, that goes with like the peripheral serotonin hypo, uh, hypothesis involving like hibernation, but it actually turns into like diabetes, obesity, um, anorexia. And then I think there was like a biphasic response, right? Where at certain levels of serotonin or, or in certain individuals, you had like an anorexic effect, but then in other individuals at, at certain levels, it's got like a hyperphagic effect where like their appetite was strongly increased overall. So it, it's an interesting hormone, but yeah, I think removing certain foods that are irritating, making foods taste really good. And then having like in, having the person introduce them and continue with them over time your taste will start to change. The other thing I want to say is that when people are sick, appetite tends to be, or not necessarily always sick, but if you're coming from a state where you're not in such a great state or you haven't been eating well for a long time, it does take a little time for the appetite to kick back in. So I think in the healthy state, as Danny mentioned, the ultimate goal would be to just like, like I'm hungry when, when I'm going to eat, I'm hungry. Like I know when I'm going to have my meals, I look forward to my meals, I want to eat, but I have been in points where at certain times was like, I just didn't want it. Like I just wasn't hungry and I was cool with it. And I think you can dip in or out to that as you adjust to different things. So like people who start doing intermittent fasting are like, yeah, I'm just not hungry. This is great. And then, then in the flip side, which I was in that place at, at one point on the flip side, it's like you start introducing some juice, some carbs, whatnot. You start to feel better. And it's like, man, I look forward to my pineapple juice or my orange juice or whatever it is at every meal. And I've had clients come from, I'm not a sweet person to I really love Uncle Matt's orange juice. Like that, that, it's the only orange juice I'll drink. I drink it all the time. So yeah, that's my experience with that. Jay or Harrison? <laughs> yeah, I, I uh, 
I agree with a lot of what Mike said, or I, I think I agree with everything Mike said. I think you touched on the most important points and I've definitely seen that as well. And I think I, I just want to mention, I think appetite in general is a really great indicator or it can be a really good indicator of changes in metabolic health and seeing an improvement over time tends to be one of the signs that I see a lot working with clients of improvement. And that tends to go with eating more and no weight gain, if anything, weight loss. So, cause I know that that's something that some people might be, might be concerned about if they're seeing an increase in appetite, but I tend to see that as being a really good sign. And I will say, I think other than intestinal health, sometimes just a really low metabolism can also be involved. Of course, that can be caused by low serotonin, but I think also long-term low-carb dieting or low-calorie dieting can cause it, cause basically, you know, hypothyroidism, hypometabolism. And in those cases, I do think sometimes maybe using some B vitamins, like a B vitamin complex or B1 or B3 in particular, uh, or using small amounts of thyroid could be helpful for stimulating appetite if some of those other things don't work. It would definitely not be the first thing I go to, especially because that can cause stress if someone's not eating enough. But it would be something I would maybe look to if those other things are not fruitful. And Harrison? Yeah, I think um, like you definitely don't want to force force a habit that somebody doesn't want to. Uh, they don't want to eat. Like You don't want to force it on them. You want to try to find something that um, they like to eat and make it readily available to them. So it's really easy for them to, to snack on something that, that they like, whether it's juice or raisins or whatever, something that they find works for them and it's calorically dense. That's what you want to do. You want to have it um, happen in, the, in an enjoyable way, like making it taste good. Um, other things for like low appetite, I find that. Um, First thing that I, I look at really too with low appetite is how much protein they're they're intaking. And maybe they don't feel like eating sweets, but maybe they do feel like um, some red meat or something like that. And that would contain a lot of the B vitamins. And that would also um, perhaps lower their blood sugar, which would make them want to crave something sweet. And then you're kind of getting calories in like that. Um, and then uh, increasing the amount of salt. Um, I find that people with really low sodium like their metabolism's low, they don't have a lot of appetite for um, sweet things or savory things. If they're not having a lot of salt, they just don't feel like eating much. So I would look to see um, how much salt's in the diet, try to increase the protein and to find foods that they like and um, go from there. Awesome. With that, we'll call it there. Guys, thank you so much. Jay, Mike, Harrison, sincerely appreciate it. And thank you to like the 33 or 38 listeners that uh, checked us out. So really appreciate it. This was a, obviously a beta run of this whole thing. And I think it will just get better with time. And we really appreciate you guys just hanging out with us and everybody that called in. Really, really appreciate it. Okay, we're, we're going to target maybe two of these a month. And if you guys really enjoy it, we'll do more. But I think that will... Suffice for right now. Um, so, guys, uh, you can subscribe. I'll, I'll be putting these up on dannyroddy.substack.com, and it will be on this channel, and I'm sure we'll have some more redundancy as well. Um, so, last thing. So, Jay, where can where can people find more about your work and you? Uh, yeah, my website is jfeldmanwellness.com, and Mike and I do a podcast called the Energy Balance Podcast. And then Mike, right back at you. Uh, my website is mikefave np.com and then i do as jay mentioned we do a podcast together and then i also do a podcast with hans amato at uh i think it's just hans amato on youtube <laughs> and then harrison <laughs> i am taking time off from working with people um and i don't have a website and 
Yeah, I'm not sure why you'd want to find me. I'll be here. I'll be on the the bioenergetic helpline. So awesome. you can find me here. Awesome. Guys, appreciate it so much. Thank you, everybody that called in. And look, I'll be sk- posting the schedule of whatever on the Telegram. So scri- subscribe to t.me slash Nehradi. Keep up with the show. And then we're doing an episode of Generative Energy tomorrow with Georgie Dinkoff. Okay, guys. Thank you so much. Have a great week. We'll talk to you guys soon. And peace out.